you would, turn to the Bible to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. We are going to finish out chapter 2 this morning. We are looking at Thyatira, the church in Thyatira. This is our fourth. It's the fourth of the seven. Revelation chapter 2, we'll start in verse 18. The older I get, I want to confess to you all, the older I get, the more grumpy I am as a driver. I don't know if I didn't notice it before, but now I notice bad driving. And it frustrates me. I did have somebody ask if this was from road rage. It wasn't. You know, we have this roundabout here in Fairdale that we love. It works so well. It's made traffic flow so much better. But we got that roundabout five years ago. And there's still people that don't know how to yield. I was telling my kids this week as I was behind a car that stopped in the roundabout that you never, ever stop inside the roundabout. Cars approaching the roundabout are supposed to stop. Once you get in, you don't stop. You do this until you exit it, okay? Car stopped right there in the middle. That's frustrating. So I told my kids, we need to have a way where we go back and revisit learning to drive. Because we don't really do that. It's too easy to renew your driver's license. We need to go back and learn that. One of the things you got to learn in driving is your blind spot. Everybody knows the blind spot, right? You got a couple mirrors, three mirrors, there, there, and then one there, and you can, you're taught to do this. At least when I learned to drive, you were taught to do this. Now, in some vehicles, you got a backup camera. But you can't see everywhere. Back over here somewhere is a blind spot. You may have checked this way, and okay, there's nothing over here. You may have checked this way, there's nothing over here. You may have checked the mirror, and you don't see anything behind you, but there could be something right there. And you have to take some time or pay attention or really keep your head on a swivel to recognize that. And I like the word blind spot because it, it lets you know that there could be a small section that you're missing. There could be in a good driver who is aware and observing so many things, let's say 90%, they've got a good eye on. There might be a spot back there that they cannot see, that they're not recognizing. Churches have blind spots. Churches can be awesome. And filled with so many good works and good-hearted folks and commitment to God. And yet, have some areas that are just wrong. And we're blinded to them. Now, I say blinded to them like we don't even see it. Sometimes churches see it and just don't do anything about it. And that, I guess, isn't exactly a blind spot. That's a ignoring uh, what you saw. 
the church at Thyatira has a blind spot. And it's an awesome church. You're about to see that. One of the things that's happening, and we knew that this would happen, is week after week, for seven straight weeks, we're going to read about these different churches in the first century in roughly modern-day Turkey. Seven different cities that had each their own church in the first century built upon the ministry of the apostles, coming out of the book of Acts, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the gospel. God had saved lives and changed people and created followers of Christ. Churches churches were established. Discipleship and ministry were happening. And the book of Revelation tells us of seven cities that all had churches in them, and we get letters. Letters to each of them in one big letter, which is the book of Revelation. And in reading these, it's really good for us. The first one was Ephesus. You remember what God said about them? You have forsaken your first love. You do a lot of things really well, but you now don't love. We know what you hate, but we don't know that you love. And they need to repent of that. The second one was Smyrna. And they're the ones that he said persecution is coming. Be faithful unto death. That awesome word, that strong but truthful foundational word from the Lord Jesus Christ. Be faithful unto death. The third one was last week, Pergamum. And this one got a little bit thicker. Pergamum was becoming worldly. They had given in to some false teaching. You remember that? You had the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans, two different false teachings that they were embracing. And the result was them just becoming like the world, and specifically, sexual immorality is named. Because they were not sticking to what God said, they were believing some false teachers that told them you can believe in God and yet live like the world that doesn't know God and that won't fly. And God tells the church in Pergamum that they need to repent of that. Today we have the church in Thyatira. Of the seven churches or cities where the churches are, Thyatira is the smallest. The commentators keep saying that it's the least significant. But if you notice, this is the longest section. And I like that because you and I need to know that a church's significance is not formed by how big it is. A church's significance is not shaped by how big the city is or where the location is. Regardless of if you're rural or urban, if you're big or small, if you have young people or not so much young people, if your music gets you clapping or if it doesn't, right? The significance of a church is they are God's church. And they are to love God back who saved them by sending his son to die for them. That is the significance of any church. There are some churches right now that are less than 50 people, many of them. Less than 50 people. But their hearts are in the right place. And they show up each Sunday to look to this book. And they pray there. And we are to understand that this is not a competition between any churches. 
There's no winning churches and losing churches. There is one gigantic church that is the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, to which He is the head. We are to be faithful to our Lord and Savior. The church in Thyatira seems to be the least significant because it's the smallest city, and yet it's the largest section. It's verses 18 to 29. That's 12 verses. In wording, in the original, it is by far the most words written. Thyatira's message is very similar to the one in Pergamum with false teaching. But it is way more intense because it is specific to one specific person. There is a blind spot in the church in Thyatira. Because for all the good it's doing, for all the health that church has, there's one person in that church that is of the devil And they're letting it go. Read with me, if you will, at Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. But she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's a long one. That's the longest one. And that's a heavy one, isn't it? As soon as I finished Pergamum last week, and set my focus toward Thyatira this week, I have been praying and even asked Asking several of our people to be praying. This isn't necessarily an easy passage to preach in front of a crowd of people like us. I want to follow the same framework that we've seen in every book, I mean in every uh, letter to the church. Two points. And this should be on the kids' listening pages for you children that are following along. 
Number one, Jesus says, I know this about you. Says that to the church. And number two, Jesus says, I have this against you. He says that to the church. So number one, Jesus says, I know this about you. It's all there in verse 19. All the good that he's going to say about them, which is a lot, is contained in one verse, verse 19. And it appears that he recognizes six things about them. Look at verse 19. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. Maybe that's six things he recognizes. Or maybe it's just four things. Maybe the works are the love and faith and service and patient endurance and uh, your latter works exceeding the first is just another way of saying how good the works are that he mentioned. So there's four. Four or six, either way. Jesus recognizes the good in this church. We've said this every week. It is a comfort to the church. It is a source of accountability to the church. But God knows everything we're doing. The Bible says he sees the inside of us, the outside of us. He weighs the intentions of our heart. He knows. He knows everything that's going on with us. He knows why we're doing it. He knows when we have turned the other cheek from a pure heart. He knows when we have not turned the other cheek. He knows when we are uh, in bad attitude. He knows when we're sinning on the inside. He knows when our eyes are in directions that shouldn't go. He knows when our mouth is not clean and honoring to him as it should be. He absolutely knows what we're doing with all of our wealth. He knows how we're parenting. He knows how we're treating our neighbors. He knows, he knows, he knows who we are inside and out. And that is to be an encouragement to the church. He is our shepherd that leads us. He has not left us. He's not a God sitting out in outer space somewhere. He's a father to his children. He disciplines those whom he loves. He walks with us. He is our Lord. And he sees And so he knows that the church in Thyatira, as well as any church, he knows what they do. Remember, he's the head, the church is the body. He knows what we do. If there's something going on here, he knows it. He knows that we had a wedding here yesterday. And he knows how we preached at that wedding and how we treated those people. He knows. He knows that we're worshiping this morning. He knows what song we sang. He he knows that y'all were that close to breaking out clapping, right? We're close to clapping on those songs. That was great. He knows everything. To the church in Thyatira, he says some really good stuff. He knows that they're a loving church. He knows that Ephesus wasn't a loving church. But the church in Thyatira is. And they care about people. They help each other. They forgive each other. They go the extra mile with each other. They bear each other's burdens. He knows that they have faith. They are a believing church. They are not a church that is high on how good they are. They are not a church that knows that that they do good things. They believe. They believe God. They believe truth. They have faith. They believe. He knows that they are a serving church. The word here is service. They are a ministering church. They want their church to do things in the world in the name of God. They are a church that does service. They minister. 
And in first century, as we've seen time and time again throughout the New Testament, it's not easy. It's not easy being a church. It's not easy being a Christian. There is persecution in many places in the world. And so they have patient endurance. They are sticking with it. They are not giving up. They press on. They are holding on. They are keeping the faith patiently. Even though at times it's not fun or even positive. They are patiently enduring. They will not give up on God because God will not give up on them. And he then says that your latter works exceed the first, which is an interesting statement, isn't it? But I think what this means is that they're, they're growing. They're, they're progressing in the health of their church. Their love is getting stronger. It's not that they used to be and they're just trying to ride on the good old days. They're still loving. They're still believing. They weren't established on faith and now they've kind of drifted away from it. No, they still believe and they serve. They still serve and offer service and minister. And they still endure patiently. He knows this about them. And folks, we need to remind ourselves that there are a lot of, lot of good churches out there. There are a lot of churches out there that are really trying to do good things. You know, I've been out of seminary now for 20 years. Graduate, no, no, it's not right. 16 years. I've been out of college for 20 years. And I went to college with a bunch of guys that are still doing ministry. And I went to seminary with a bunch of guys that are still doing ministry. And almost every week, somebody gets in touch and we talk to each other or something like that. I could name for you right now 100 people spread out all over the country, all over our state, all over America, people all over the world that are humble, that believe God, that love Jesus. And they are working hard to lead churches to be faithful to God. We need to be reminded here this morning that the Lord Jesus Christ sees and recognizes lots of good in churches. Now, we're going to get there in a second that there's also some blind spots in churches and that can be really troubling and really problematic. And we know that. And churches deserve all of the uh, negativity coming their way for those things. I know that. And Jesus is about to lead the way on that. I know that. But before he does that, he recognizes also and points out to them a list of six things or four things, either way, that they're doing really well. The church in Thyatira loved well, believed well, served well, and patiently endured. And they were growing in those things, which means that there are a lot of people in the church in Thyatira, there were a lot of individuals in that church who were walking with the Lord Jesus Christ, walking by faith, not by sight, not giving in to the Jezebel teaching, not giving in to the false teaching, living faithfully, living in repentance, apologizing when they're wrong, leading their families in prayer, showing grace and mercy to the world around them as they have received grace and mercy from their Father. The church in Thyatira is filled with people that are in a right relationship with Jesus. We need to remember that. Jesus recognizes that. But 
The church is made up of individuals, but it's also a, a body. And so in one way, you could say about a church, man, that's a good church. they got some good people there. And that's true a lot of the time. Humble people, forgiving people, broken and burdened people because they want to reflect God. And yet, like all churches, there can be some problems in them. I want to remind you yet again, I feel like we say this all the time, a church is made up of people, and people are messy. I am and you are, we're complicated. We have good days and bad days, we get bad attitudes, we make mistakes, we sin. And so not only are people messy, but churches are messy. And you need to know that. Churches are messy. But that's a soft way to say it. People are sinful. Sometimes we are just downright crooked and disobedient and wrong in the eyes of God. That's just the truth. Don't you ever shy away from that. Don't you ever try to argue that that doesn't happen. Bad things come out of Christian people sometimes. People are sinful. And absolutely sometimes churches are sinful. But that doesn't mean that all the good's not coming out of it too. So we need to recognize that this is what Jesus is saying about the church in Thyatira. He knows this about them. That they're loving, their faith, the service, patient endurance. That's the first point. But there is something else he has to say. Verse 20 he says, but I have this against you. In the loving, faithful, servant, patiently enduring church of Thyatira, there was a blind spot. There was something going on in that church that they either didn't know about, or more likely knew about, and we're too scared to address it. Hey, we know. Okay, let's just go ahead and say it. We've all lived church experience where there's something that needs to be addressed and nobody has backbone enough or courage enough to address it. May that never be the case for us. And may that never be the case for you. Jesus says, I have this against you. Look with me at verse 20. It's really all in verse 20. All the good in verse 19, all the bad in verse 20, and then 21 throughout is uh, breaking it down. He says in verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Tolerance and intolerance are hot words these days, aren't they? Man, we hear them all the time. Can we recognize this morning that the tolerance is a bad thing, but it's directed to church people and how they're dealing with church people? Let's, let's, let's stay focused on what Jesus wants us to stay focused on. Okay, nothing's worse 
than us getting really worked up about what's going on outside the church and ignoring what's going on inside the church, okay? That is not how we're supposed to be. The Bible actually says, do not judge the world. The Bible does say, judge the church. If you've not heard that before, welcome to biblical Christianity. I don't know how the world wants us to be about ourselves. But we have marching orders from our commander-in-chief, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's this big book. And he tells us to read it, know it. Matt read earlier from John chapter 8, verse 31, that his word is the standard in John chapter 8. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And it is the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ in this book revealed to us that teaches us how we are to live our lives. And it says, do not judge the world. God is and will do that. And we're going to talk about that here in just a few minutes. But he does teach us to judge each other. That's what a real church is. That's what Christians are that commit themselves to each other and strive with each other and walk with each other and bear with one another. And are patient and kind and tenderhearted. I'm using all biblical words right now. Patient and kind and gracious and merciful and tenderhearted toward one another. That we will commit to each other. That's what a church covenant is. And that's what faithful involvement is. And that's why we have members meetings once a month on a Wednesday night. And that's why we want to be here to look back to this word. So that the actual word of God from the Lord Jesus Christ will show us how we are to relate to one another. And here, in the church in Thyatira, they are tolerating this woman Jezebel, and they should not be. Something should be done about it. So who is she? Okay, there is a single individual woman in this church, and she calls herself a prophetess, and she is teaching, and she is seducing my servants into making them practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. This is not all about sexual sin. This is about them becoming worldly and doing things that God says they should not do. And it is her biblical Christian church teaching that is leading them into it. That's bad. It's not actually biblical. It's not actually Christian. It's not actually church teaching. But it is under the name of that. And she is saying that it's that. But it's leading people away from God, not to God. It's leading them away from honoring God instead of, instead of honoring God. And it's a problem. And they should not be tolerating this lady, Jezebel, in the church. Now, it's hard to tell, but I don't think her name is Jezebel. I think he has spared this lady because they obviously know who he's talking about. And he calls her Jezebel because Jezebel is such a name that rings such a huge bell in the Old Testament. If you're able to turn there, I want you to, to try to find it. It's 1 Kings, all right? And if you've ever tried to turn pages in the Bible with one hand, it is difficult but I'm going to turn to 1 Kings 16. And I'm going to show you two places where we really get the understanding of who Jezebel is. 1 Kings 16. If you don't want to turn there, that's okay. Just make sure you listen really well. 1 Kings 16. Now, Jezebel in the Old Testament is 
King Ahab's wife. And King Ahab is supposed to be a good king to the people of Israel, and he's not. He's a bad guy. And the Bible seems to say that partly it's due to the influence of his wife. Now, I don't even want to begin with anybody here thinking that women are more often than not the problem. I know a lot of women that are in trouble because of their bad husbands, leading them in the wrong direction. It goes both ways, guys. Sometimes the wife leads the guy in the wrong direction away from God, and sometimes the husband leads the wife in the wrong direction away from God, okay? We know that. But in this case, with this woman, it's Jezebel, and King Ahab is evil in the sight of God, and his wife Jezebel is evil in the sight of God, and they're supposed to be the leaders of the people of Israel. Look at 1 Kings 16, verse 31. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Verse 32, he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab, verse 33, made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Whew, that's not good. One of the things the Bible makes very clear is if you're going to be a leader, you're going to have more responsibility on you, more accountability, right? Teachers are responsible for the kids in their classroom. Principals are responsible for everybody in the school. Coaches are responsible for everybody in the locker room, right? Governors are responsible for everybody in the state. Presidents are responsible for everybody in the whole country, right? There's a lot of, there's a lot of leadership and, that, out there, and it brings a lot of responsibility. Kings are responsible for their nation. King Ahab was not doing right, honoring God, looking to God. He did more to anger, okay? He did more to provoke God. He did more to anger him than all the previous kings. This isn't good. And it is directly related to him worshiping anything other than God. He worships this false god, Baal. He erects an altar to him. He builds a house for this false god. It's just a whole life going in the wrong direction. Was he religious? Was he spiritual? Was, a, was he a praying man? Was he a worshiping man? Yes, he was all of those. But in the wrong direction. It wasn't worship to God. He was wrong. He was sinning. And his wife is mentioned there, Jezebel. Well, stay in 1 Kings and turn over to chapter 21. Stay in 1 Kings and turn over to chapter 21 and look with me at verse 25. 21, 25. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. Ahab was so committed to doing evil in the sight of God. 
The king of Israel was so committed to doing evil in the sight of God. And it says there in 2125 of 1 Kings that his wife Jezebel incited it. So that is a little bit about Jezebel. We can turn back now to Revelation chapter 2. So what I think is going on here, and again, it's hard to tell. I've said this many times already in Revelation. I think when Jesus writes to the church in Thyatira, and he says that they tolerate that woman Jezebel, he's referring to a specific lady in their church, but her name is probably not Jezebel. He's probably calling her Jezebel because Jezebel connects so much with that story in the Old Testament of somebody that's supposed to be about God but is leading people big time away from God in the name of God. And that is so bad. They tolerate that. It's got to be dealt with. She, let's, let's notice again what she's doing. First of all, she calls herself a prophetess. Prophets and prophetesses are people that speak for God to people. Back when we preached through Exodus a while ago, we talked about that a lot. Some of y'all might remember that. A prophet, okay, a prophet is somebody that gets a message from God and then goes and tells it to the people. That God says, go tell them this, and then they go over here and they say, thus says the Lord. God told me to tell y'all this. They, they speak on behalf of God. A priest goes in the other direction. A priest talks to the people, they confess their sins, and then they go back and they ask God to forgive the people of their sins. Priest takes it from the people to God, prophet takes it from God to the people. Well, speaking on behalf of God is huge. You have got to know this is a scary and dangerous thing. It's bad, it's really, really bad. You don't like for anybody to put words in your mouth, right? That will trigger you in a heartbeat if somebody quotes you wrong or tells somebody that you said something that you did not say. Well, imagine being God, whose mouth is always perfectly clean. He never says the wrong thing. His words are always pure and true. And then imagine somebody down here on this sinful, fallen planet saying, well, God says that this is okay. What? That's horrible. I'd rather you not speak on behalf of God than speak wrongly on Him. You ever heard somebody get worked, up, get worked up and say, hey, keep my name out your mouth, right? You hear people say that sometimes? That's how it should be with God. If you're not going to represent him well, you better not talk about him at all. God's not just some guy down the street that might get worked up with you or not. God's not some guy down the street that might respond in a bad way and put you in a tough spot. God is God. He's our maker. He is the Almighty. And we dare not speak wrongly of Him. That's why we just spent time in this morning service praying together for future leaders. We're not looking for any cool guys or girls. We're not looking for people that can draw a crowd. We're looking for people that are fearful and walk by faith before the living God that will walk in obedience in the mercy that God has for them by the power of the Spirit and not dare make a move or speak a word that would misrepresent God. That's what churches are to be about. And so the church in Thyatira has this lady who calls herself a prophetess. Y'all, she's not a prophetess. She should not be speaking on behalf of God. 
And since she calls herself a prophetess, she gets to teach, or she is teaching. Now, it doesn't tell us that they've you know, given her a small group or a Sunday school class. It doesn't tell us if they gave her the pulpit on a Sunday morning worship service or something like that. We don't really know how that's happening, but in some way, she's teaching. And the result of that is in the name of God, seducing my servants to practice sexual morality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. It's not good. To show you how bad it is, I want you to look over to verse 24. Look at verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. That's what her teaching ministry was called to the ones who knew better. The ones who knew better, the ones who knew what the Bible actually says, the ones who did not listen to her, the ones who were burdened for the direction of their church, the ones who were convicted at the sin going on in their church, the ones who, by the grace of God, were recognizing the blind spot in the church in Thyatira, they were referring to her teaching ministry as the deep things of Satan. Think about that. But it was still there. Imagine if a loving, faithful, believing, serving, patiently enduring church also had a teaching ministry going on with it called the deep things of Satan. That's what's happening in the church in Thyatira. That's bad. That's really bad. That's a blind spot. That's a good church that's got a really bad thing going on in it. This can't be. So we get to see how Jesus himself responds. And it's strong. And it's judgment. It's not judgment alone, but it is judgment. Verse 21, I gave her time to repent. Church, you need to be reminded here this morning that anybody, anywhere that's still breathing can repent and turn back to God. Don't ever let somebody get you thinking that God is a big bad God and he's mean and unfair. It's not true. It's not true. He is so good and fair that the pendulum is far away from him being a big, bad, mean God that's not fair. Even right now, this Jezebel who's doing this could repent. He even says, I gave her time to repent. I wanted her to repent. And repentance, as we have shown, is a turning back. It's, it's going in this direction with whatever you're doing and turning and going back toward God. That's what repentance is. It's turning away from the bad sin in our lives and repenting. And Christian people are always repenting. Because we sin, we must always be repenting. Christians are not people that don't sin. Christians are people that repent of their sins. Never, ever forget that. And may that be your witness and your testimony to every single person in your household and every single person on your street and every coworker you have when they know that you are a Bible-believing Christian and that puts you in such a box, may it never be the message that we are people that don't sin. May it always be that we sin and we repent. We need Jesus more than they do and 
it is never, ever, ever that they need Jesus more than us. Even Jezebel, for as bad as she sounds, should repent and was given time to repent. And Jesus told her to repent. That's always God's message. That's why that's always what we preach. The Bible says that God loves us and he is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and not willing that any would perish. And the Bible says that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. He wants me and you today to turn to him and say, God, forgive me of that. Forgive me for being that way to my wife and forgive me for being that way to my kids and forgive me for talking that way and forgive me for looking at those things and forgive me for being lazy and sluggish and indifferent, God. Forgive me for not giving a rip about things I should care about and forgive me for the pride that is tearing up my heart, God. Forgive me. I repent of those things. That's Christianity. Believing that in our repentance, we are forgiven because of the whole work of Christ on the cross. The Lord Jesus Christ that loves us and sent, it went to the cross for us and went to the grave for us and rose again for us. If we repent of our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christianity is a message of repentance turn to God and here Jesus says I gave her time to repent but keep going she refuses to repent in other words she won't do it she doesn't think it's wrong she won't turn back from it she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality so now there's judgment Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her work. So even when he's judging, he keeps saying unless they repent. You can always turn back. You can always turn back to God. Verse 23, and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Now, before you start thinking that she's a young mom with all these little toddlers at home and God's about to kill them, that's not what this is, okay? That's not what this is. She's a teacher that had a following. And at this point, they're probably second generation now of people believing what she teaches. When he says her children here, he just means the, the growing number of people in this church that are like, I like what she's saying. I kind of like her teaching, and I, I'm following her. She says it's okay for me to do this. And I've got this sin in my life, and this is what I do, and it's, it's um, sexual morality and eating food sacrificed to idols. It's, it's doing things that God says not to do and doing it and then saying that it's okay in the name of God. She's led now lots of people into this, and the people that are under her following her teaching, he refers to as her children. And one of the ways that we know that is because what he says immediately after that is all the churches will know. When I deal with this, her teaching and her followers, when I deal with them, all the churches will know that I am judging and that I search mind and heart and that I judge people according to their works. It's always about our works and judgment. In salvation, it's about our faith. Faith in Christ is what will forgive us. In judgment, it's all about our works. We've all done bad works. Every human being does good works, but every human being has also done some bad works. 
And in judgment, that will be the case. Here, he's going to judge them for their works. And they do not have forgiveness because they do not believe in the Son of God who gave his life for them. And so what we have here is judgment. We need to hear this morning that God is a judge. This doesn't make him bad. It actually makes him better. He's fair. He's accurate. He's not quick to judge. The Bible says he's slow to judge. The Bible teaches us also to be slow to judge. Not quick to judge. This past Sunday night, we heard an amazing sermon from Jonathan on the book of Numbers, and I loved it. And one of the things he said is there's a, there's a false understanding that you hear all the time that the Old Testament shows us a God of judgment. And the New Testament shows us a God of mercy. That's just not true. The Bible shows us a God of judgment, and the Bible shows us a God of mercy. The Old Testament shows us a God of judgment and a God of mercy, and the New Testament shows us a God of judgment and a God of mercy. This is the New Testament right here when a false teacher in a New Testament church is told, I'm going to kill you and everybody that follows you because they are so bad. But that's the last book of the Bible. We can turn way back to the fifth book of the New Testament, the book of Acts. And there's some people that showed up to church one day and lied about their offering. And God struck them dead in a New Testament church. It's not the Old Testament. And there's a warning for us that you don't lie to God. It's not really about money there. It's really not. It's about your heart being dishonest to God. They said, God, we're going to sell this thing and we'll give 100% of it to you. They showed up at church and they put half of it in there. And God said, I'm going to strike you dead today. You lied to me. And it happened. That's New Testament. Now, what I want y'all to know is that if he does that now, we don't know it. We don't know if if that's what God does. But we have to say God's a judge, and we have to acknowledge that sometimes he judges. But by and large, most of the time he's not. I bet everybody in the room's heard somebody say before, oh, God might strike you dead for that. You do that in that building, God's going to make that church collapse on you. We've been aware of times where somebody should have been judged, and he didn't. I bet many of us here today think, can't believe I made it this far. I can't believe God's brought me this far. Y'all, he's not usually judgy. He's not. This is the fourth church that we've read about. It's the first time we've heard him say something like this. We've been reading the whole New Testament. You don't see a lot of this. He's not usually judgy like this. He is a judge, and that's a good thing. But here, teaching in his name is such a bad thing. Leading people into sin that will lead to death that just causes their heart to be hard and far away from God is a dangerous thing. The Bible says, don't you dare become a teacher of the truth of God, and you will be judged more strictly. You will face a double judgment from God if you want to stand here and speak on behalf of this book on behalf of God. You better take that seriously. And this lady is not. And God gave her time to repent, but she hasn't. And so now he's going to deal with it. And in certain settings, every one of us like a good judge. We do. I have said countless times in my life that I'm so thankful that there were a few times in my life where my dad spanked me I think all the time about how many times I got grounded on a beautiful sunny day like today 
And my mom made me sit on the couch in the living room and look out the window at all the kids playing ball outside. And no, you're not going out there and playing with them. You'll sit right here and you're going to learn. You ain't going to do that again. And I remember plain as day the time that my mom heard me say something bad. She washed my mouth out with a bar of gold dial soap till I was choking. She said, you're not going to talk like that. And I remember when I was a young teenager driving way above the speed limit and a cop pulled me over. And I prayed the whole time that he wouldn't give me a ticket and that he'd be gracious to me and he'd just give me a warning. He said, no, sir, you drive like that again. I should arrest you. You deserve this ticket right now. You go deal with it. Y'all, judgment is good. Don't let anybody tell you that it's not. And this whole world is trying to tell us right now that God's wrong for being that way. They're wrong for saying that about him. If God wants to judge, let him judge. Don't you ever think you've been good enough to escape it. But may you think Christ took it for you. God is a judge. And he should judge people that sin against him. Why he's waiting so long right now, I have no idea except he's rich in mercy and slow to anger. He should judge every one of us, especially people that stand in a spot like this and teach people like you all that it's okay to be wicked and sinful. Judgment is good. But look what he says. He wants, in verse 23, all the churches to know that that's who he is. That he sees and he knows the mind and the heart. And he will judge people according to their works. The response to that from us is that we shouldn't want him to. And when we realize, I don't want God to judge me, and we look for a second by that small piece of grace penetrating our heart, we say, what must I do to be saved to escape the judgment? And he says, I sent my son Jesus to die for you on the cross. He took your judgment. I've already judged you in Christ. On the cross, judgment took place for the sins of the world. And whoever believes escapes the judgment. But everybody that does not believe does not escape the judgment. And they will be judged. And so he says, verse 25, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers, and the one who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. That's Christ. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There is reward for the person who holds on to the saving grace that comes through Jesus. To the sinful person that admits that they know they should be judged, but believes that Christ was judged for them, there is reward. Eternal life, heaven, adopted into the family of God, salvation. Now, I haven't mentioned verse 18 yet. And the first verse of each section is a recalling back to chapter 1 of how Christ describes himself. Here, look what it says. The words of the Son of God. This is the only place in the book of Revelation where you have the word Son of God. It's the only place. Only place. And I think the reason why he says Son of God here 
is because he wants us to feel how wrong it is to misrepresent God. We're talking about his father here. The son says this false prophetess leading people astray is talking about my family. This is the only place in Revelation where you have a son of God. But then you have this, his eyes like a flame of fire, that's referring to judgment. His feet are like burnished bronze, that's referring to stability and foundation and strength in judgment. Christ wants us to know who he is and what he's like. That the church in Thyatira is his church. And the church in Thyatira is his church that he saves and he's working in and he sent his spirit to empower and they're doing so many good things. But he has this against them. They tolerate this false teacher and it must be dealt with. In closing, I want you to look at Acts chapter 16. This is the last thing and we're going to be done. Acts chapter 16. Have you ever heard of Lydia? Some of you all that have read Acts before, have you heard of Lydia? Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. And the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony, we remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who hurt us was a woman named Lydia. From the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her whole house or her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. In the New Testament, Lydia stands in strong contrast to that Jezebel. Church, there can be blind spots. You can have a Lydia in your church along with a Jezebel. That should bother us. There needs to be repentance. Here today, I want to ask you in closing, first of all, that as we sing, you would pray to God and ask Him to reveal your blind spots. I want to ask us today to pray to God and ask Him to reveal your blind spots. Hey, I know how good of people you all are. We brag on you all. We send you thank you notes and texts. We want to keep you encouraged for the good you do. And so does the church in Thyatira. But what if there's some blind spots that are wrong toward God? And the second thing I want you to pray about is that you, 
not me, you, would help our church with our blind spots. That you would help us with our blind spots. May this judge not say, I gave them time. I gave that little old church in Fairdale time to get right, but they aren't doing it. Let's ask God to reveal to us our blind spots individually and as a church. If you're here today and you want to trust in Christ, meet me right down here. He will forgive you of all your sins. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the church in Thyatira. And God, I, 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 I'm not so much worried about them as much as I'm worried about us. I'm worried about me. God, I pray that we would not ignore the crooked, destructive stuff, the deep things of Satan that may be going on in our hearts or in our church. God, convict us of our sins and point us to Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need to respond today, we'll be standing up front.